If you want to grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18. If this is your first time with us, we want to make sure that you feel welcome today. We're so honored to have you as our guest. We've been walking through the life of the prophet Elisha from the Old Testament, and, and uh, we finished with that last week. And so the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different parables in the life of Jesus that Jesus spoke. And they were all about the kingdom of God. And the idea that we want to come around this week and the next two weeks is the culture of the kingdom of God. You know, every place has a culture and the kingdom of God is no different. Things that are important, the way things work, we want to understand the culture of the kingdom. Uh, The book of Colossians in chapter one says that you and I, we've been transferred from one kingdom to another kingdom. We once lived in the domain of darkness in our sin under the influence of Satan. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we've now been transferred into the kingdom of the son that God loves. And so now when we have faith in Christ, we live in the kingdom of God. But the challenge is, is we live in the midst of two different cultures. As Christians, we, Christians, we live in the culture of the kingdom and we also live in the culture of this world and they're not always the same thing, are they? And so we want to have a firm understanding according to the the stories of Jesus, the parables of Jesus. And what is the culture of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a citizen of that kingdom? How does that kingdom work? And we're going to start in Matthew chapter 18. Last week, I stopped by uh, my favorite fast food restaurant to get a large unsweet iced tea. There are not many things in this life I enjoy enjoy more than a large unsweet iced tea. And I don't don't care where I I get it from. I I get it from home. I'll make it at home. I'll get it from the grocery store, a fast food restaurant, a nice restaurant, anywhere. I just love unsweet iced tea. And so I had been running errands and and, uh, I stopped by and I got me a big glass. It was only a dollar. It was just good stewardship to go in there and get one. And and, and I came home and I walked in and I set it on the counter because I had to go and mow the yard. And so I'm out there mowing the yard and it's hot. You know, it was before all this rain started coming. And and so it was Houston hot with the mugginess and the humidity and all that. And I'm out there mowing the yard and and, and the whole time I'm thinking, man, this is going to be so nice to go inside with my sweat and smelling like lawn and enjoy my large unsweet iced tea. So I finish, I put all my tools and and things uh, into the garage and I go inside, I go to the counter where I had left it and it's not there. And so I start looking around in all the usual places. I'm thinking, well, my wife must really love me. She thought that it's going to melt. And so she put it in the refrigerator. I go to the refrigerator. It's not in there. So I say to Amanda, hey, have you seen my large, unsweet iced tea? And she goes, oh. (laughs) She said, Jackson went to take a drink of it and he spilled it. He's six if you're new. Oh. Did he spill all of it? You know, because sometimes the, the, lid is, the lid is on and it saves some of it. But alas, it was a bad one. Jackson was in the room. He could sense my mood changing. And he said, I'm sorry. I had a dad choice in that moment. Because I want my son to apologize when he's hurt someone, whether he mean, meant to or not, when he's done something wrong, whether it was an accident or he did it on purpose. I want him to apologize. And if I want him to apologize in the future, then I need to, in that moment, say, I forgive you. It's okay. But I didn't want to. (laughs) 
I I wasn't done being mad. Have have you ever been in that moment? Maybe you're fighting with your mom or dad or your grown children, your sister, your brother, your, God forbid, your husband or your wife, and and, and you you have some conflict or you get into a little tussle and, and you immediately reach resolution, you have understanding, and then you leave the room. And then once you leave the room, you go, hey, wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm still as mad as I was before we even started this conversation. Because forgiveness, it's hard. In fact, I would say that there are very few things that are harder than forgiveness. I think it goes against everything in our human nature. Now there's forgiveness in the world because we're all made in the image of God and our God is a forgiving God. But if you and I just did what we wanted to do and we let our natural instincts determine the course of our life, we would never forgive. But the culture of the kingdom is a culture of forgiveness. And what we're going to see this morning is those who have been forgiven should forgive. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times. Now that phrase brother, it means somebody close to Peter, probably the disciples. So you can imagine the 12 disciples sitting around Jesus and Peter says, hey, how many times should I forgive these guys when they hurt me? You can imagine how awkward that would be. You know, John over there, he's probably gonna hurt me a bunch of times. How many times should I forgive John? What about Andrew? He's my biological brother. I grew up, he's just hurting me all the time, wounding me all the time, hurting my feelings all the time. How many times should I forgive my brothers? Up to seven times? Now we're going to see that was a lot in Peter's mind. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. If you're good at math, that's 490 times. Now your version of the Bible may just say 77 times. Um, Greek scholars and translators, they're a little unsure of whether Jesus was saying 70 times seven or 77 times. It really doesn't matter. It's the way that you and I would use the word a thousand. You know, how many times are you gonna do that? You're gonna do that 10 times? No, I'm gonna do that a thousand times. Do you literally mean that you're gonna count out, you know, a thousand times? You No, you just mean that you're gonna do it over and over and over and over again. And so that's what Jesus is saying here to Peter. Should I forgive him seven times? No, you should forgive over and over and over and over again. There shouldn't be a cap on your forgiveness. Verse 23, Jesus starts his parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now this word slaves, you're gonna see, it doesn't mean what we typically think of as slaves because this slave in particular is going to be entrusted with a lot of money. So this is probably a a government leader, maybe a provincial ruler. This is gonna be somebody important who is underneath the authority of the king. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, a couple of things you need to know about this verse. 10,000 was the largest number they had in the Greek language. They didn't have a name for the numbers that went above 10,000 and a talent was their largest measurement. So Jesus has chosen the largest number that they have a name for and the largest measurement that they have to describe the kind of debt that this man owed. Verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now that may sound severe to you, but that was common practice. If you owed a large debt, you couldn't repay, they'd sell you 
And if they needed to, they'd sell your family. Now this man's not going, the king's not going to uh, get a return on his investment, but it's going to be a just punishment for this slave who borrowed the money and couldn't pay it back. Couldn't pay it back. Verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. So the slave falls down in front of the king and he says, listen, I, I promise, I promise I I'll pay you back. He's a grown man laid out face first in front of another man saying, I promise. It says, when it says the word saying here in my version, it, it means he said it over and over and over and over and over again. We say that Jackson has the spiritual gift of asking because he is a great asker and he has an incredible amount of perseverance when he asks. So usually when Jackson asks for two things, um, it's going to come to two, two, two solutions. Either A, he's going to get in trouble because he keeps asking and we keep saying no, or he's going to get what he wants. This is what this man was doing. He was asking over and over and over again. Verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that's a hundred days worth of work. That's it, just a hundred days worth of work. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you. So this slave is doing the same thing that the last slave did. He's fallen face first. He's asking for mercy. He's asking for, for more time and he's promising to repay. Verse 30, but he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger. He was moved with compassion just a minute ago. But now he's moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And Jesus wraps up his story by saying this in verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. Look back at verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Uh, now Peter has still got verse 15 in his mind. Look back a few verses if you have your Bible. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So Peter has heard Jesus just bring up the possibility that maybe one of Peter's brothers, one of these fellow disciples, somebody close to him might hurt him, might sin against him. And so he's, he's kind of still thinking about that. Jesus goes on talking, but Peter's back in this the idea of his brother sinning against him. And, 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 he's, and he's imagining maybe one of these guys hurting him, wronging him in some way. And then he's kind of imagining, what if they don't stop? What if they don't learn after the first time? What if they don't apologize? How, how many times should I let these guys hurt me? Now, rabbis in this culture, other religious leaders, you know, Jesus was a rabbi. He was more than a rabbi, but in their culture, he was a rabbi. Other rabbis, they would tell you to just forgive three times, that you were obligated to forgive three times. Three times was fair. Somebody hurts you, you forgive them. They hurt you again, forgive them again. A third time, you forgive them. After that, you're released. You don't have to offer forgiveness to this person anymore. So what Peter is doing is he's doing Jesus math. 
You know, Jesus math. Let's take what everybody else is doing it and double and add one. And so that's what Peter does. The rabbis say three times, Jesus is way bigger, better than all the other rabbis. So let's double it. Let's add one. How many times should I forgive? Plus seven. Seven is like a scriptural number. Seven's always being mentioned in the Old Testament. So I'm going to go with seven. How many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven times. Seventy times seven. Again, Jesus is not saying on the 491st time that somebody hurts you, they're off the hook or you're off the hook. You don't have to forgive anymore. He's saying in the kingdom of God, forgiveness is the posture. That you and I, we don't wait until we're hurt and then decide if we should forgive. We don't see and evaluate the wrong done to us before we decide to forgive. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, which means we live with the posture of forgiveness. So we have already decided before we have even been been hurt that we're going to forgive. Now that phrase 70 times seven or 77 in your Bible, it's not just a random number. Jesus is actually reaching back into the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 24, or Genesis chapter four, excuse me, Genesis chapter four. Sounds like we're going to have a good soundtrack this morning. Genesis chapter 4, it's telling the story of Cain. You remember Cain, one of the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain kills his brother Abel. So God punishes him and sends him out. He puts a mark on Cain. And the mark on Cain was a warning. And it came with a promise from God that if you killed Cain, God would avenge him seven times. That's what Genesis chapter 4 says. Well, Cain has children. His children have children. And this is what one of Cain's descendants says in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech. Men, can you imagine coming home to your wife and saying that? Imagine me coming home saying, Amanda. Listen to my voice. Give heed to my speech. No, it wouldn't go over well. For I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77fold. So what he's saying is he's saying, listen, Cain, my forefather, God said he's going to be avenged seven times if somebody kills him. This boy, he struck me. This man, he punched me. So I'm going to be avenged, not seven times like my ancestor Cain. I'm going to be avenged 77 fold. Avenging is easier than forgiving. In fact, if we're being honest this morning, when we have been wronged, What do we want? Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Paul's going to address this from a different angle. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church in Rome to get along and he's giving them some helpful hints how to live at peace with one another. It says this in verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. 
You know, that's really the first step. In fact, if you consistently have the same mind as other people, meaning you imagine what it's like to be them, you probably won't need as much forgiveness as you currently need. You won't wrong people as much if you'll take a second and think about what it is they're thinking about. Think about what it's like to be them. Last week, during the 4th of July, we went and floated down one of the rivers in the hill country. And, and it's a fantastic time. It's so beautiful there. And, you know, you can, you know, kind of picture floating down the river. It's just kind of peaceful. You're just letting the stream go. But they invented these things recently. Maybe they've always been around, but I'm just now discovering. They invented speakers. And when I mean speakers, I mean bullhorns that you can uh, plug your iPod into that float. So I don't know how many times you have to float in the river before you think that that's a good investment of your money. Hey, you know what I need? I need a stereo system that floats, that will just float along with me down the river. But apparently a lot of people have one. Maybe you have one, God bless you. But they are extremely annoying because apparently they only come with one volume and it is really, really, really loud. Like so loud, like you can hear the Texas soundtrack before you can even see the people uh, down the river who have this little thing floating behind them. And you know, we get up to them and then it's like, I'm getting out of my thing and I'm walking past these guys because it's just blaring past me in my ears. Like it's, it's, it's unbearable, you can't think, it, it's, it's just terrible. And after about the third one of those speakers, I said to Amanda, one lesson we will teach our children. If I only teach our children one thing. It better be this thing. I will die a happy man. It is before you do anything. You need to think about what it would be like to be somebody around you. But who wants to do that? That's no fun. To take a step back from what it is I want to do. To go, I wonder how this is going to affect this person. I wonder how this is going to affect this person. I wonder how this is going to affect this person. Some of us would need forgiveness less if we just took a moment to put ourselves in the shoes of the people around us. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation, meaning be humble people. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. So he says, don't retaliate. Don't take revenge. See, our natural instinct is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. I may not hurt you in the exact same way that you hurt me, but I'm going to hurt you. We want somebody to pay when we've been wronged. We're having to pay the price of somebody else's poor decision. We want somebody else to feel that same thing with us. So we say eye for eye and tooth for tooth, evil for evil. But the problem for returning evil for evil is it doesn't undo the evil that's been done to you. Now you just have twice as much evil. When you go for somebody else's eye, you don't get your eye back. Now you just have two people who are partially blind. But instead it says, leave room 
for God. I mean, these are strong things that God is saying here through his word. Let's read it again, just in, in case you missed it. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So when we're wronged, the idea would not to be retaliate, not to be to take a step towards that person who wronged us, but actually to take a step back and leave space for God to come and do what it is that God does, to bring justice. But that's scary, isn't it? It's scary to, to leave the responsibility for making somebody else pay because of our pain in the hands of somebody else, right? It's the fear of Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah? God says to the prophet Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were wicked people. They were this pagan people, neighboring country, always doing evil things, all kinds of evil these people were doing. Just terrible, terrible people. And God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach repentance to them. I want you to tell them to repent. And if they don't repent, I want you to tell them that I myself, God himself is going to drop the hammer on them. I want you to go and tell them that Jonah. So what does Jonah do? He gets on a boat, he sails in the opposite direction. Now you and I, we would probably sail in the opposite direction too. My motivation for sailing in the opposite direction is who wants to be that guy? Who wants to be the guy rolling up into a city, looking at all the people there going, you don't know me, but I want you to know that you're wicked. And if you don't change and you don't repent, God's gonna drop the hammer on you. Who wants to be that guy? Nobody wants to be that guy. That guy gets killed. That guy gets beaten. That guy gets thrown in jail. I don't wanna be that guy. And so that might put me on a boat in the opposite direction. But that's not why Jonah left. Later on in the story of Jonah, you find out his motivation for running in the opposite direction. It was because Jonah knew that when he went to Nineveh and he told them to repent, they probably would, and God would let them off the hook. And he didn't want them off the hook. He didn't want them forgiven. He wanted them pay for the evil that they had done. So it's scary when everything in us tells us to take a, te take a step toward the person who has hurt us, to actually take a step back, to leave room for God to do what it is God will do. Listen, and there's nothing wrong for wanting justice. There's nothing wrong for, for wanting, for wanting um, there to be consequences for the way that you've been hurt or the way that other people have been hurt. God is a God of justice, so you shouldn't look at injustice and just be fine with it. It's okay to have those feelings. But what we are responsible for is to not retaliate, not eye for eye and not tooth for tooth, but to trust God to bring his justice, that he would define the terms of justice and the timing of that justice. I like to volunteer for being God's tool of justice, don't you? Oh, you, God's gonna make them pay. I'll volunteer. I'll be your instrument of vengeance right now on this person. Oh, when you've been wronged, don't take a step back towards that person in retaliation. You take a step away. You leave room for God to come and defend you. God to come and protect you. Psalmist David is always saying to God, God, come and vindicate me in front of my enemies. Prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I'll let you fight for me. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, no, you don't measure your mercy 
You don't decide in the moment if you're going to forgive or not forgive based on what they've done or how many times they've done it. Your responsibility is to forgive because those who are forgiven should forgive. Back to Matthew chapter 18. Verse 23. It says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So he owes 10,000 talents. Now, conservative estimates, of course, we're, we're going back, you know, thousands of years. And just like our dollar today, it fluctuates. Sometimes the dollar is stronger. Sometimes it's weaker. But a conservative estimate would be 6,000 denarii per talent. Uh, so a denarii is one day's worth of work if you kind of had a normal job. So if you're doing the math, 6,000 denarii uh, for um, one talent, 10,000 talent, that's 60 million days of work that this man owes the king. Now, I don't know how many, know how many days you're planning on living. I doubt that you're going to hit 60 million. Now, you may be wondering yourself, how on earth did this guy get in debt? Like, who would take on that debt? Visa would love that. But how on earth could anybody agree to borrow that much money? We don't know. And of course, this is a parable. And, uh, but Jesus' listeners would have had a firmer idea of, of what this occupation of the slave would have been. Some uh, would have been. Some biblical scholars think he's a tax farmer. Anybody ever heard of a tax farmer? It's not very common. Uh, but it's actually the last tax farming system went away in 1930 in the Middle East. And so it's actually kind of a recent thing. A tax farmer was somebody who would go to a, 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 their government and they would bid a fee or a tax. So you would go to the government and say, listen, you're, you want to collect taxes from people. I promise to pay you a flat fee of, you know, $10,000 and that's going to be your tax. And then the government would give that person permission to go to the people and tax them. Anything that they made over that promised amount, that $10,000, they got to keep. So you could see how that would be a very attractive job where you could make a lot of money. You had to promise a lot of money, but if you were able to come through, you could both repay your debt and make a lot of money for yourself. And so maybe some biblical scholars think that this person in the parable would have went to the king, the slave, and said, hey, I promise to pay your fee of 10,000 talents. And the, the king said, okay. Gave him that responsibility, loaned him out that money essentially. And then he was never able to collect it. He was never able to pay his debt. And that's how to, what he got into that situation. 60 million days of work. And he gets down on his knees in front of his face, on his face, and he just starts begging. And the king is moved with compassion. And he says, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Your debt, it's gone. Erase it all. Take it off the ledger. It's gone. If you've read your Bible from beginning to end, you know in the depth of your heart that this debt, this 60 million days of work, doesn't hold a candle to the debt that we owe God. God has acted graciously toward us. 
He has extended all kinds of goodness to us. He created you. Out of the sheer will of his good pleasure. He sustains you. He holds you together. The scripture says literally right now, this universe that we're sitting on, that's spinning around and around and around, it's being held together by the very word of Jesus Christ. All those molecules, all those cells that are holding you together, all those protein things, that glue inside of you, held together by the will of the Son of God. He has acted graciously toward us. He protects us. He gave us commandments, both that would honor him and would provide life for us and joy for us. And what did we do with all that graciousness? We took those commands and we did the opposite. We were Jonah. He said, I want you to go this way. And we went the other way. And we owe a debt that we could not pay. Now you may be thinking, well, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, in fact, I'm a better person than the person sitting next to me right now. I know that person and I'm definitely a better person than that person. I don't feel so bad. I don't feel like maybe yeah, I owe a little bit of debt, but not like a colossal amount of debt and surely not 60 million days worth of debt that I owe God. Take the Ten Commandments, the most simple, straightforward commandments in all of the Bible. The Bible's filled with a lot of commandments. God is very clear in what He wants us to do with our lives. But the Ten Commandments, they're kind of the summary. They're the simple commands of God that He gave to the people in Old Testament. Let's work backwards. This will be a little game. Uh, let's just see if we pass the test, right? We can start with the very last one, which is you should not covet. Anybody ever coveted before? Anybody ever been jealous? Just raise your hand in a moment of boldness. Yeah, absolutely. Guilty. See, we're already down. The next one, don't bear false witness. Meaning don't let anybody take the blame for you. Anybody, you ever let somebody take the blame for you? Ever passed on blame to somebody else? Your boss ever come into your office and go, I don't know what you're talking about. Why don't you go ask that person, hoping that person has done something wrong so the boss stays in their office a little bit longer. You may have done that this week. Don't steal. Maybe you've never shoplifted. But I bet we've all lived in that gray area at work. Don't commit adultery. And maybe that's something, you know, I have never done that. I can honestly say that I've never cheated on my spouse until Jesus ruins it for us. When he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You ever lusted after somebody? Do not murder. Definitely never murdered anybody. If I'd murdered anybody, I wouldn't be here. I'd be in jail. Jesus, again, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you've hated your brother, you've already committed murder. You ever hated anybody? Of course you have. You didn't call it hate because your mom told you not to use that word when you were growing up. <laughs> but you know what hate feels like. Honor your father and mother. My mom and dad are here today. I would love to say that I've honored them all the days of my life, but unfortunately I was a teenager and no teenager makes it through their teenage years fulfilling this commandment and you didn't either. <laughs> Honor the Sabbath. Sabbath day, day of rest, day where you come together with the people of God and worship God. You ever been at home on Saturday night? thought about how long your week is going to be. Wake up on Sunday morning and you go, you know what? 
I should probably go to church, but I just don't want to. It's good TV on Sunday morning, isn't there? Yeah, all kinds of shows you didn't even know existed (laughs) until you broke that commandment. All of us have. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Guilty. Don't make any idols for yourself. You've maybe never carved out a statue, put it up in your bedroom and worshipped. But we've all worshipped some kind of idol and have no other gods before me. All of us have given our allegiance and our worship to something or someone besides the one true God who is worthy of that allegiance and worship. We can't even make it through the Ten Commandments which we teach our children. And that doesn't even get into the nitty, gritty, dirty details of the specific ways that you broke those Ten Commandments. We owed a debt that we could not pay off in a thousand lifetimes, not just because we are awful people, but because of the holiness and the purity and the graciousness and the goodness of the God who extended life to us. And yet in Christ, God has looked at all of that that we have done and said, forgiven. Forgiven. But will we be like this servant who immediately received his forgiveness and then forgot it? And you go to somebody else who owes you something, who has wronged you, And you make them pay in a way that God has not made you pay. I want you to look at it again. Verse 28, But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Again, a hundred days worth of work. So you can imagine comparing 60 million days worth of debt and a hundred days worth of debt. It doesn't compare. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, Pay back what you owe. And so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? I want you to notice the basis with which this king wants his servant or wanted his servant to extend forgiveness. It was not the size of the debt. He didn't say to the slave, listen, I forgave you 60 million days of work. You only for, you couldn't even forgive this guy a hundred days worth of work. What's your problem? His debt was so small compared to yours. You should have just forgiven him. No, he said, you should have forgiven him because I forgave you. Listen, some of you, some of us have been wronged in some horrible ways. Ways that not a person in here would would diminish your story or your right to revenge or vengeance. You've been harmed, you've been taken advantage of, you've been wronged so significantly, it would horrify us if we knew all the details. And what God would say to us today, I think, is he's not asking us to forgive because the person deserves it or their debt is small. 
their debt may not be small to you. It It may be massive. They may not be worthy of that forgiveness. They may not deserve that forgiveness. Listen, they may have never even come back to ask for that forgiveness. But if we wait for them to deserve it or for the debt to somehow appear small in our eyes, we will never forgive. But Jesus is saying, you don't forgive based on any of those factors. You forgive because you've been forgiven. You forgive on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. He alone is worthy for you to offer forgiveness and extend forgiveness to somebody else. That person is not worthy of your forgiveness. But Jesus is. That person probably doesn't deserve your forgiveness, doesn't understand the cost that it takes for you to offer that to them. But Jesus does. If there's anybody on planet earth, in the heavens above, or in hell below, below who knows the cost of saying the words, I forgive you, it's Jesus. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Verse 33, it says, When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him that said, This is the king of the Jews. You know, we put a lot of emphasis on somebody's last words, what they say on their deathbed, what they say with their dying breath, that's important to us. We think that that means something usually, and this is Jesus's dying breath. This is his deathbed. And what are the words that are coming out of his mouth? I forgive you, Father, forgive them. Listen, Jesus is being murdered and he's being murdered so slowly that he knows he's being murdered. And he still, even in that moment, says, Father, forgive them. You know, Jesus' followers, most of them had abandoned him. They were all in hiding when he was suffering on the cross. But there were a few there that day on that hill outside of Jerusalem. Imagine what it would have been like to be them. You look around and all these people are stopping and they're gawking and, and they're, they're, they're taunting Jesus and they're, they're mocking him and they're putting these, these signs up on top of the cross to mock him. They got the crown of thorns to mock him. These religious leaders, they're responsible for putting them, him there in the first place and they're mocking him saying, come down, you've saved others, save yourself. And in the midst of all that, to hear Jesus who you had dedicated 
years of your life to, who had changed the way that you saw everything, who you had put all of your hope and faith in, that he was the Messiah that you believed in, and you heard him say in that moment, forgive. I think that tells you the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing. Because if the king forgives, then the citizens should forgive. Those who are forgiven should forgive. I don't know what the first step for you today is. You may not have any offense against somebody. That's great. But maybe the first step for most of us today is not to just rush to some words coming out of our mouth. I forgive this person. I forgive that person. Maybe the first step is just a painful stroll down memory lane to remember our debt. You know, I think God is wise that in somehow his amazing majesty and power, he removes our sin from his mind, but he leaves it in our mind. He forgets our sin. That's what the scripture says. But he doesn't let us forget our sin, does he? I think to keep us from getting to a place where we would be like the servant and have received so much but give so little. So maybe the good first step for us today is to gather up our courage. And if we feel an ounce of self-righteousness in us that maybe our sin quite, isn't quite as offensive as the person sitting next to us, to just take that long, painful stroll down memory lane to remember the depths from which God has rescued us. And then today, receive freely, fresh and new, the forgiveness that Jesus offered, not just these people mocking him on Calvary, but, the, but us, the forgiveness that he has given to us, the cleansing that he has given to us, to remember our debt, but to receive his forgiveness. And once you've done that, now who do you need to forgive? You don't forgive them because they deserve it. You don't forgive them because what they did to you wasn't that bad. You forgive because you've been forgiven.